Good morning. Before I hand anything out, uh, let's begin. Let's begin with a word of prayer. And before and before that word of prayer, I just want to. There's. Uh, I was reading a, a book about about Lent, and there's some really insightful things. Um, I just want to read you just a couple of things, and then we'll then we'll pray. Um, this author, Thomas Hopko, uh, he says, "Joy is at the heart of everything in the Christian life, and Lent is no exception." Jesus commands all those who fast to be joyful. He condemns sadness and grief, especially the outward appearance of fasting before men. He orders his people to hide their sorrow and to cover their sadness over sin. He directs them to hide their acts of penitence to appear shining and bright to the world. Blessed mourning over the tragedies of this fallen world is necessary. Those who mourn over evil are promised comfort by the Lord, and godly grief over sins is for the sake of leading us to conversion and repentance. But in the Lenten season, the Christian struggles to put aside all worldly grief to embrace the godly grief, the blessed joy of holy sorrow, which inspires spiritual laughter in the soul. Let us pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, let us, your people, receive Lent with gladness. Let this beginning of our spiritual warfare arrive with joy. Let us forsake the indulgences of our flesh, that the gifts of your Spirit may abound in us. Let us embrace our share of suffering as soldiers of Christ. Let us prove ourselves to be children of God. Let the Holy Spirit take up his abode in us, that our souls may be filled with his light. In your Son's most holy name we pray. Amen. Okay. So, we've got to hit the ground running. There's lots to do. And... It's fortuitous that I'm teaching you again this week because there were a couple things we didn't talk about last time that were on the sheet. So we're going to start this way. I'm going to hand out last week's handout, and we'll see if these things interest you. Um, and since we have so many things to talk about, if they don't interest you, we can breeze past them and move on to new things. Any questions at this point? Well, then I might give you an answer that's wholly unrelated to your question. Go ahead. Um, the people who have their family killed, um, the proper response, unfortunately, would have to be, it shouldn't be that we want justice. It should be that we want, we want, or uh, we forgive him, or we want to turn the other cheek, or what's the proper response to that? Uh, begin what you said again. I missed the very first part. The people who have I had someone lost, like to jihadi John or some other terrorism. Yeah. Good. Did you hear all these people talking about that? And I keep thinking, as a Christian, we shouldn't be seeking justice. Right. We like terror to end. But even Christians, what the Egyptian, the one brother said, who lost two brothers. Said, yeah. I'm, you know, they would be honored to die for I know. Christ's name on their lips. Yeah. What saints? What like saints? Right. Yeah. Yep. So there's two sides. So there's two. There's two answers to that. There's two parts to that question, and this has to do with something we talked about last week: um, the two kingdoms, uh, the kingdom of the left, my left. So here, we'll do, I'll do it in your direction: the kingdom of the left and the kingdom of the right. I'm not. This is good practice for me. Um, <laughs> kingdom of the left and kingdom of the right. The kingdom of the left is is governed by the law, and this has to do with the government and justice. We hear about. We'll hear about this. Uh, today, especially as we talk about marriage. This will become really important. So this, this is, I'm glad you brought this up because this is really important later. Kingdom of the left, government, justice, 
the sword, right? The kingdom of the right is ruled by the gospel. Forgiveness reigns, right? So, uh, what do we as, where do we as Christians fit into this? Well, it just so happens that we have one foot in each kingdom, right? So, those martyrs, um, and Jesus being a prime example of one, who says, Father, forgive them, they are, uh, they are exercising the Christian virtue of, of, of charity and forgiveness, right? Now, those criminals who um, have, have murdered, uh, even though they're forgiven by the ones whom they've, they've injured, and even though they may be forgiven by God, still suffer the penalties of, of the kingdom of the left, right? Um, C.S. Lewis, I think it, he talks about it in this chapter, doesn't he? He says, the proper thing to do if, you're a, um, if you murder somebody, yeah, yeah you're going to be forgiven by God, but the proper thing for you to do is to hand yourself over to the hangman, right? Mm-hmm. Because this, otherwise the world erupts into disarray. So what do we pray for as Christians? Well, one, we pray, uh, we pray for their for, that they receive forgiveness from Jesus. Um, and that they and that and especially, I mean, can you imagine the the situation, right? So uh, how and how challenging it would be for a person who uh, supposedly imagined the, they realized the atrocity of their crime. How difficult it would be for them to receive forgiveness, right? You think think how hard it is for you to receive forgiveness for the the the, the, tri- the relatively trivial things that you do, right? Um, so we so we pray for that they would receive forgiveness and faith. But we also pray, as David does in the Psalms, that justice would be done, that 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 uh, um, that God would exec- that God would punish evildoers, right? Holly, I have a hard time reading the last chapter. I'm, I'm jumping ahead. No, that's okay. Oh yeah. No, you're right. So, and here this is where this is where the distinction between the two kingdoms is is important, and and this is where being a Christian is difficult because um, everything you've said is true. There is room for repentance and forgiveness, um, but now, so cap, capital punishment aside, let's just talk about punishment in general, discipline in general. Um, and for whatever reason. So a lot of times uh, governments establish penalties for crimes um, to rehabilitate, to prevent recidivism, right, so that they don't do the crime again, or sometimes just an eye for an eye, right? There's lots of reasons why a government might execute judgment. Um, exists to the, be- to, to the best of its abilities to, to protect the people that are under its care. And um, I- interestingly... Notably, we don't have a prescription from God on how that is to take place, right? In the Old Testament, if you were the people of Israel, you got, you got executed for a lot of things, right? <laughs> um, uh, but, that's not, but that was a prescription that, that God gave for the people of Israel. So 
in some in a very real sense it is up to the governing authorities to decide how to protect the people and they will be judged based on how they how they do that but their job um, and this is this is this is the sticky point their job is not to rule by the gospel their job is to rule by the law um, uh, which is very challenging it's very I mean because because you can imagine the picture and you I'm sure you've seen maybe seen movies right a penitent on death row right and what you know so we know that he is penitent um, and that he's forgiven by God and in fact if, if there's any time you're going to be penitent is when you're on death row right yeah oh I see what you're saying I see okay okay um, do you have any? Uh, do you have any other? Do you have any other uh, other questions along those lines? Yeah, go ahead, Nancy. It's like a good question, but I mean, one thing I realize, like when I hear about jihadi done decapitating all these people, my first reaction is, oh, I would get him. Yeah. And then I realize how easily I could descend to the same level he is. But in, I think in all of us, we have, we're fighting this, this evil that could come out on us also. You know, and I realize too that I should really be praying for these people who've been so misled that they think they're doing the work of God by killing people. That's perfect. Yeah. So uh, this is shameless advertising. Come to Bible study on Sunday <laughs> because th- this is this is this is all very pertinent to the story we're going to study on Sunday. Okay. Um, all right. Yeah, you're right. Now we we have now. What's interesting? Um, you remember last week we read Psalm six. I love Psalm six. Um, listen here, if you have your if you have your Bible, open to Psalm six. I'll read it to you. Um, listen to listen to how David deals with this with this righteous anger or with his anger. Okay, so suppose that David and we find out constantly that David uh, experiences the same impulses that we experience in the face of enemies who are persecuting him, persecuting his loved ones, whatever, what have you. He says, um, first of all, he. He begins the psalm by, uh, with, a, with a verse of, of repentance. Okay? So he's being persecuted. His enemies are after him. And what does he do first? He says, O Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger. Uh, why do you suppose he begins that way? So, th- so you know the situation generally. He's got enemies who are harassing him. And he begins by saying, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger. He supposes that this is some sort of punishment, right? Now, what's really so? Now he, he does it a couple, a couple times. Nor discipline me in your wrath. If you look at the Hebrew, this is really interesting, and this is one of the reasons why I love this psalm. Um, in in the Hebrew, it's, it's 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 clear. It's very emphasized that this is how it sounds. O Lord, rebuke me, not in your wrath. Discipline me, not in your anger. Okay, so he's saying to God, rebuke me and discipline me, but don't let it be in wrath or in anger. Have we done this before? Have I done Psalm 6 before with you? Okay, great, perfect. So if it's not wrath and it's not anger, what is it? Love, mercy, kindness, right? And this is, uh, this is one of the things we acknowledge during the season of Lent, right? That, that God, dis- and this is uh, part of the prayer. Um, we receive our sorrows as God's steadfast love for us, not as his wrath towards us. Okay, so he's got these enemies, and he begins by acknowledging his guilt, right? So he says right off the bat, I got this wrong. 
right? And, and this, is, this is where your impulse is right, Nancy. You know? So you re reflect on how you, how you react to these sorts of things and say, first of all, um, whether, whether it's you being persecuted or somebody else being persecuted, you, ref you, look, you look first at your own sinful condition and say, um, I, I need to enter this into this prayer with humility. I need to enter into the situation with humility. Okay, Discipline me not in your wrath. Be gracious to me. Heal me. My soul is greatly troubled. Deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. So now the prayer turns to salvation. He's still not talking about his enemies at all, right? He's talking about uh, his, his prayer for what God offers, salvation. Um, and so he directs us here again to think about those, you know, so imagine the situation of a martyr, right? We, what do we pray in the situation of a martyr? That they died in, in, the, sure, in, the, in the full confidence of, of, of Jesus uh, resurrection, and we rejoice. I mean, what? I mean, uh, unbelievable joy at the confessions that are made when martyrs when martyrs die. Right? There is n there is no greater joy than to hear that confession, um, and and that is uh, that is how we know uh, that that is the answer to the prayer of of God saving them um, in His steadfast love. Okay. So then he gets this verse, verses six and seven. And here I I always think that David is just sort of spouting a little bit. I'm weary with moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I mean, it's a little dramatic. I drench my couch with weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. It's terrible, right? It's so bad. He's telling God how bad it is. And then what he says is, depart from me, all you workers of evil. So here he's asking for justice. He's saying the en his enemies, uh, go leave me alone. Stop your injustice. Stop your wickedness. And he's commanding them uh, because, why? The Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. It's not, it's not because David is going to be the executor of justice, but it's because God is the one who executes justice, right? Now, what's notable is that, um, well, there are certainly lots of times, come on Sunday morning Bible study, there are lots of times when God executes justice on his own, but it, it just so happens that he works frequently most often through means, and the means that he's established for executing justice on earth is human government, right? All authority is given by God, right? To, for your sake, for your protection, right? Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. This is the reason for all of his, uh, th this is the basis upon which he, uh, he, his prayer turns. Now, all my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled, right? That's not a very charitable thing to say about them, but it's the Lord's justice that's given to them, right? It's the Lord's justice. They shall, be tur they shall turn back and be put to shame into a m in a moment. Now, um, he's, he's praying that, that God would execute justice, but what's, I mean, what's one of the interesting characteristics of shame? Shame, is sort, of, shame sort of puts you on the edge. If you're, if you're ashamed... You're on the edge, and you can go either. You can go in in one of two directions, maybe more directions. But which, where can you go if you land in, in a situation where you have where you're experiencing shame? Lash out, or you could uh, withdraw. Well, that's right. Okay, so yeah, you, the, the, that's, those are two great ways of describing it. You could you could harden yourself. Um, you could deny. You you can justify, or you can repent. Right? You can acknowledge your shame, um, and so his prayer even though he's praying for justice, even though he's praying that their sins would be uh, brought before them and that God would deal with them, that their wickedness would stop, um, his prayer in the end um, you know, 
leaves open the possibility for repentance. Okay. Any other questions? Any other thoughts? Do you think that those families... Oh boy, that's a... <laughs> what I think doesn't matter. <laughs> they stay on TV. <laughs> okay. But they would be comforted if these people were brought to justice. Oh, okay. Oh, that, I would not be, I don't think. It depends on what kind of comfort you're talking about. Yeah. Right? I guess so. Okay. So if you are talking about psychological comfort, then we have to ask a psychologist. If you're talking about um, spiritual comfort, um, in, I think that the greater comfort would be to find that they had, had repented, right? For me, the most comforting thing I think would be that I was able to forgive them and from my heart. And I think it would take a while if they had destroyed a child or sure. someone close to me. And you know, you know what's, um, I mean, I'm so glad you said that because it, our forgiveness of other people, of our forgiveness of these criminals is, well, it's, it's okay, so it is, it is helpful for us, but basically we're terrible at it, right? Um, which <laughs> it takes is, a long time. It takes a long time, which is why, thank God, that he does the forgiving, which really counts, right? So our forgiveness um, can restore the relationships that we have on earth between, between among each other. Um, but, but me forgiving you, you forgiving Jihad John, um, Johnny Jihad, is that, uh, whatever, whatever it is, uh, that does nothing for his soul, no, right? No, no. And, uh, and so the greater comfort is him receiving God's forgiveness. Once that question's, if that, in terms of in terms of like whether earthly justice, whether the justice of the law is executed or not, that that pales in comparison to the comfort that you receive. The, the, the saints, the, the the angels in heaven rejoice, right, at the death of a, a penitent sinner, right. Shirley. Oh boy. Okay. Yeah. You're absolutely okay. Perfect. Uh, and, and and um and the thing to say first of all is that um, uh, Lewis writes about this. He says um, he talks about this in marriage. Right? There's a difference between being in love and loving. Right? You in fact don't even have to like somebody that you love. You in fact, could wish that they'd be hung on the gallows and still love them. And that, that right? doesn't make you any less Christian. Right. I mean, I still see God's mercy and grace, and I still see that. But to get someone like that, just... It, it is... This is perfect. Um, be, you it, well, yeah, well, okay, so you it, don't, don't worry about having to live long enough because... Our lack of forgiveness, our lack of forgiveness is something to be repented of, something that we receive forgiveness for. So there's a, there's a prayer um, that, uh, that shows up in our pastoral care companion, published by 
Concordia Publishing House. Um, and it's the Pastor's Prayer for Forgiveness, right? Um, which uh, is um, it's very interesting because among the things that are included in there, words that it puts in my mouth, which I really appreciate because they wouldn't come out naturally, is to forgive, that, that is to pray that I would forgive those who sin against me, right? Um, which is why, uh, why, so for one thing, we pray, we, 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 offer, this, we offer this prayer of, of penitence when we acknowledge that we can't forgive, right? We're, we're not going to do it. Um, or in the sense that we, we know we can't do it fully. We know that we should, right? We know that it is what Jesus wants from us, um, but we are fallen, sinful human, human beings, and uh, we, we fail at it. And that is the posture of humility and repentance. And that prayer is answered, that prayer is answered not necessarily by making you a forgiving person, but by forgiving, by, by absolution, by, by your sins being forgiven. Okay? Does that make sense? I said that while I was walking around, and sometimes when I walk around, I lose my train of thought. So this is from this same book that I just read to you. Again, if you come on Sunday, I'll share more of this book for you. <laughs> Um, it's, it's, it's really, really great, but, uh, look at, so there's, he quotes something from first John here, but then look at the paragraph. Um, and this is, this is so striking. He says, love between sinners is essentially expressed in forgiveness. And he doesn't mean, he doesn't mean like essentially in the sense like, oh, it's basically expressed in forgiveness. He means love in its essence. This is, this is love is forgiveness. Love between sinners is forgiveness. There is no other way. It cannot be otherwise. Forgiveness is the singular expression of love in this fallen world. If, therefore, we desire to be loved and forgiven by God, and even more, if we know that, as a matter of fact, we are so loved, that we are, that we are so loved and forgiven, then we must love and forgive each other. Now, note this. The Lenten season exists for this purpose, to express the love of God for one another through mutual forgiveness. This is the teaching of Jesus himself. Why do we have Lent it's to practice the things that we're really bad at, the things that we should do that we're really bad at, right? So we practice forgiveness, um, and forgiveness, uh, and we practice it because it's unnatural. It, it, it is, it's not easy for us, right? Um, and, and our failures at, at forgiving are, 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 um, are, are not, a, they, the, it's, a, it's a source of godly sorrow, right? Because we receive, because we too receive that forgiveness, Jan. Well, and as a sinful human being, there are instances in which, well, in any way, shape, or form, as a sinful human being, we don't look at forgiveness as something that's part of that life. Right. It's only after the old Adam is destroyed and the new Adam comes forth. That through the Holy Spirit, we can forgive. Absolutely. Does that mean that the lights are going to go on and you're going to be thrilled? No. Right. So look at Psalm, I mean, Psalm 6 is paradigmatic, right? So, so the, every prayer begins this way, basically. Discipline me not in your, rebuke me not in your wrath, discipline me not in your anger, right? So I'm struggling with forgiveness. Forgive me, right? Um, and it's, uh, it, it's that posture of humility, that posture of penitence, Again, we'll see this on Sunday. I'll stop after this. Um, this is what makes you. This is what. This is. This is the. This is in the Christian life. This is. Uh, this is. Uh, this is one of the ways. One of the visible ways that 
that we are that we are blessed to see righteousness. We righteousness it, we don't we don't measure things in terms of external external uh, righteousness, right? Because we, we, we it's not reliable, right? Um, you couldn't you can't judge a, you can't tell a Christian by looking at their behavior necessarily, right? We judge a Christian based on whether they receive Jesus' forgiveness, whether they receive their gifts, right? If you if Jesus is working on you, then then Jesus is working on you. It's not whether you're producing fruit. Um, that that that's symptomatic. That's uh, that's those are those are signs, but that's not the the source of confidence. But one of the one of the the signs of righteousness is this posture of humility, right? Knowing that we're not knowing when we're faced with when we're faced with our sin that we receive that we that we're penitent and receive forgiveness. Aaron. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like, I guess sometimes it's hard to just understand then what forgiveness actually is. Is it saying the words? Is it because you you think that it's like a heart thing too? Right. But your heart is really bad at it. Right. Right. What is practicing it actually? Perfect. Okay. So, um, so for one thing, it doesn't mean necessarily mean conjuring up feelings. Feelings are terribly unreliable. Um, Don't don't rely on your feelings. Um, what it basically amounts to is um, is identifying, acknowledging, taking, taking sort of a self-evaluation. You say, who, am, who, against whom am I holding their sins? Right? Are there people? Are there people in my life that I have not forgiven? And um, that's not necessarily that that acknowledgement is not going to produce that forgiveness, but it produces a prayer. Right? It produces a, a petition. Heavenly Father, let me forgive this person, or lead me to forgive this person, right? Um, because once again, uh, uh, just like just like repentance and humility, some, which is something that you can't you can't muster up on your own, you can't you can't make yourself humble. You also can't make yourself forgiving. It has to come from outside of you. Okay, it has to come from Jesus. All right, um, and and. Uh, it's a really beautiful thing uh, when you look at it that way, because then the burden is not on—it's um, not on you and your feelings. It's not on you and um, so I, this is trite, but Nathaniel sitting next to me at dinner and he uh, doesn't want to eat his Brussels sprouts, <laughs> and he says, uh, "I don't like them," and I say, "I know you don't like them." But you have to eat them anyways. It's okay. It's okay that you don't. It's okay that you don't like them, but eating them is what's good for you, right? Um, and you may never learn to like them, but you you eat them. You eat them anyways because they're good for you, right? And that's that's the tenuous position we find ourselves in as Christians. That the Christian life is, I mean, uh, it is hard, hard work. Um, and the, to me, we, I was at a Bible study once, and the pastor was kind of uh, was trying to get people to picture what heaven's going to be like. And there's all kinds of descriptions, you know, that people can borrow from the Book of Revelation, right? Streets of gold, choir an, choirs of angels singing, right? Well, heaven's going to be being not struggling with forgiveness, right? Not struggling with loving your neighbor. Um, not struggling with resentment or contempt. Heaven is going to be 
being freed from all of these things that we know uh, weigh us down and keep us from being what Jesus wants us to be. Um, the tricky part is waiting, being patient. That's why the psalmist, that's why David says so frequently, and Bono, how long, right? How long? Um, and and that's, a, that's, a, that's, a, that's a pious prayer. How long do we have to wait, right? Because we know what's good for us, and, and uh, we can't wait to get there. Okay. Krista. But, uh, but uh, <clears throat> would, would it be always that there is a struggle between, between a God and the devil? Um, How do you mean? Uh, this is, uh, you know, just, um, um, I think, uh, when, when we hear uh, news or something like that, you know, and I think um, the Muslims, um, they are so convinced that um, they will reign the I see. You mean in, in the world, right? Yeah, absolutely. Our expectations, our, our expectations should be that we are a church militant, a church fighting till the last day. Yeah, and um, perhaps um, there comes a time that the Christians are um, more bound together. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you see, it, so in, col in college, uh, uh, a, a bishop of the, the Latvian church came and spoke to one of my classes and um, he was talking about what it was like to be a Christian under communism. And he remarked, he said, we were never stronger Christians. The church was never more bound together. We were, we, we, our faith was never, um, our, faith was, our, our faith was never so uh, obvious, no cle so clear as it was when, when we weren't even allowed to think Christian thoughts, right? One, one, la one last thing about, about uh, the struggle, okay, so and this goes, so the, as that quotation said, forgiveness is the defining, is, is, is love in essence among Christians, right? Um, when, it comes to, when it comes to Christian to Christian virtue, to living the sanctified life, uh, as we've said over and over again, um, repentance and forgiveness are, are, the, are always the starting point and it's always the ending point. The, um, the men's retreat we had... Uh, Pastor Ladig from California. I'm sure that you heard some something about it, um, and he talked to us about private confession and absolution. Um, and uh, let me—I want to just take this opportunity to commend to you to use private confession and absolution during, especially during the season of Lent. Um, the, uh, each of the Wednesdays before the Lenten services, from 5:30 to 6:30, one of us pastors will be in the sanctuary. Um, in the in the back chapel to hear confession, the vicar is guarding the door. No no guns allowed, but he, you know he's a he's a strong guy. Okay, so he'll, he's guarding the door, um, and then also Holy Week. Um, I think it's every day Tuesday Tuesday through Friday of Holy Week. Uh, we'll be there to hear confession, and what the 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 value of so here's the value of private confession and absolution, is that uh, there are. Uh, there are sins that we confess generally because we know we are sinners, and we do this every Sunday, right? We, we kneel down and we confess together, right? But there are also sins, as Luther, Luther says, that you know and feel in your heart, sins that burden your conscience. And, um, and those sins are forgiven by Jesus, whether you come to private absolution or not, right? But uh, Jesus, ha Jesus has given you a pastor 
um, has given you pastors so that we can say to you um, directly about this or that thing, it's forgiven, it's gone, it's not yours anymore, right? Um, so let me commend that to you. And, and think about that. This is one of, the, this is one of the, the, the struggles, especially in a time, a season of Lent. If, you're taking it, if, you, if, you, if, you, if you take to heart what you learn about yourself when you practice these things, when you practice, when you practice praying and fasting and forgiving, um, if you take to heart what you learn, um, it can be hard, right? Because you, you discover that, uh, you, you, as, as C.S. Lewis said last week, right, the better you get, the more you, the, the more you realize how bad you are, right? Um, and and uh, the last thing that we want is for you to have a burdened conscience. The last thing we want is for you to, to hold back some sin and say, no, God can't, God can't deal with this because I will tell you to your face uh, that, he, that he can and has forgiven it. Okay? So let me commend that to you. Uh, what else? Should we, should we uh, look at our handout? Um, thanks for the great, uh, for all of the very good questions and great discussion. Um, it's really a pleasure to teach this Bible study. I might let me just say, this is a lot of fun. Um, take a look at the handout I gave you. That was a handout from last week. Um, we went through basically the first section, Book Three, Chapter Three, Social Morality. Um, the next section was morality and psychoanalysis, and we can talk about all kinds of things here. Uh, but I want to just make—I just want to make a couple of points, um, and maybe I'll, I didn't—I didn't spend too much time reviewing this, but I—but I, I can make a few points um, that that I wanted to that, that I wrote in here, um, just just for your reference. So, Lewis makes this all-important observation. Uh, he says on page ninety-one, bad psychological material is not a sin but a disease, um, and this is something that. Uh, uh, we reckon with and have reckoned with better and better as as you know science has progressed right as 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 medicine has progressed that uh, that that bad cycle that, that that there that there are psychological problems that aren't aren't integrally integrally related to spiritual problems that um, that for instance something like clinical depression is 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 clinical depression right and um, and that there are things that can, that a doctor can do to help with that right so. Psych- dealing with psychological matters is not a sin but a disease. It does not need to be repented of but to be cured, right? Uh, and by the way, he says that is very important. Human beings judge one another by their external actions. God judges them by their moral choices. This is why one of the first things you learn in pastoral counseling, and it might have been the one thing I remember from pastoral counseling, uh, because, well, the, the, one thing I re- the one thing that I hang on to, have hung on to since because this is, you don't learn, you don't, a lot of things you learn by being in a situation. And what we learned in the classroom was, anyway, um, it's that uh, we pastors can't diagnose psychological problems and we can't, we can't prescribe, we can't prescribe solutions to them, right? So referral is, is a big part of our pastoral care, right? Um, and that, and, and, and that's, that's, it's important for you to understand how, that's how you think of, that's how you think of pastors. And that's also important. What Lewis says about, about it, um, is true too. So, uh, we want you to repent of sins, right? We want you to repent of sin, um, and, and nothing else. So oftentimes in, in, in confession and absolution, it's easy. It's, it's so, oh, it's so easy for this to happen, um, uh, to start talking about somebody else. <laughs> to start talking about something else 
uh, or somebody else has done, um, or somebody else's sins, at which point, you know, we stop you and say, no, 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 no. Um, repent of your own sins, right? <laughs> don't, or, or don't repent of your problems, or don't repent of your, of your issues, repent of sins. We're here, we're doctors of, of the soul, doctors to physicians, of, physicians that cure souls, and souls, uh, souls trade in sin and forgiveness, okay? Um, so that's one thing. Now, we talked about this a little bit, how sin works on you. Flip the page over. Um, but I, th- I love this. I love this uh, this note and this uh, the perspective it gives on just how da- just how dangerous sin is. Lewis says one man may be so placed that his anger sheds the blood of thousands, that, and this is highly pertinent given our discussion earlier. And another so placed that however angry he gets, he will only be laughed at. Right? So he just makes a fool of himself by getting angry. But the little mark on the soul may be much the same in both. Each has done something to himself which, unless he repents, will make it harder for him to keep out of the rage the next time he is tempted. And he will make the rage worse when he does fall into it, right? So uh, here's how sin works on you, right? Uh, On the cross, Jesus died taking on himself uh, the sins of the world, and he removed them from us as far as the east is from the west. He buried them in the grave. He destroyed sin and death. There is no longer any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Uh, but there are still unholy things in the world. You know Pastor Bruzek's paradigm, right? Touch the holy, don't touch the unholy. Well, what happens if you touch the unholy? It's not that you are undoing what Jesus did on the cross, but you, uh, you run the risk of becoming callous of becoming hardened. It's not good for you, right? Um, and we don't want to find out what happens if you, if you, get, if you, if you get too hardened, right? Um, we, we know what happened to Pharaoh when, his, when, he, was, uh, when he rejected God's will. Uh, finally, God hardened his heart. I mean, it was, I mean, it's brutal, right? That's a brutal story. Um, but that's, what, that's, that's the danger. That's the risk of sin. And then... Um, uh, we read this. We read this paragraph. When a man is getting better, he understands more and more clearly the devil or the evil that is still left in him. When a man is getting worse, he understands his own badness less and less. A moderately bad man knows he is not very good. A thoroughly bad man thinks he is all right. Um, somebody once described it to me as being asleep in our sins, um, and and that's. I mean, this is why we need the church. This is why we need to hear preaching. This is why we come every week, right? Because. Uh, because of our short memories and because uh, we've become so we've become callous so quickly. Any questions? Everybody on board so far? Okay. Now, let's read this paragraph here. Chapter 5, Sexual Morality. He says, Lewis says, Chastity is the most unpopular of the Christian virtues. He says something similar in our chapter on marriage that was for this week. Um, but he just sort of, he, he embraces that unpopularity. There is no getting away from it. The Christian rule is either marriage with complete faithfulness to your partner or else total abstinence. Now, what his observations here are very helpful. He says, now this is so difficult and contrary to our instincts that obviously either Christianity is wrong or our sexual instinct as it now is has gone wrong. Um, and this, so now uh, we see this. We see this um, with sexual sin, kind of, kind of in a way that is that is um, uh, that is perhaps more obvious than other kinds of sins, right? 
But the same thing can go for laziness, sloth, you know, or, or uh, whatever, uh, glutton, gluttony, greed, you know, all of these things, right? So the desire for good things, the desire to eat good food is, is a good desire, but it's gone, it's gone wrong, right, when, when, your appetite, when your appetite is excessive, okay? Um, and uh, he, he, he makes a note that um, he, he, he's, he's, Lewis is, uh, lived at a time when, when Sigmund Freud was, was becoming very popular. I think that the timing is becoming very popular or already was very popular. And so he's, uh, all kinds of things about repression and psychoanalysis are at play. And Lewis says, well, tell you what, don't blame religion as, as sort of repressing primal natural urges because look what happens if you indulge if you indulge in these things, your appetite only grows, right? It's, it, does, it doesn't work the opposite way, right? If you indulge, your appetite grows. But what we, what we have at stake here is um, this, this combat between the, he describes it as the, the animal self and the diabolical self, page 103. Um, let's see. And this is really, uh, we talked, I, I talked with a few of you about this last week um, afterwards, um, but it's, it's, worth, it's worthwhile to note here. Look at the paragraph that begins on the bottom of page 102. This is uh, just before chapter 6 on Christian marriage. He says, Finally, though I have had to speak at some length about sex, I want to make it as clear as, pos- as I possibly can that the center of Christian morality is not here. If anyone thinks that Christians regard unchastity as the supreme vice, he is quite wrong. Now, the ramifications of that statement are manifold, and, um, and, and you, uh, you can play those out in your mind, but it's, but it's true, right? Um, uh, which isn't to downplay the, the, um, the significance of sexual sin, right? In fact, um, at just as any sin is... Uh, is uh, is problematic, um, so is sexual sin. And in fact, God uses um, adultery as one of the primary images in the Old Testament to describe the relationship that he has with Israel, right? Hosea, right? Go and marry this woman of unfaithfulness, right? And then she's going to be unfaithful to you, and then you're going to take her back, right? Um, that's right. And, and, and it's because, and, and it's become, in, in some sense, it's because it's such an obvious thing. It's something that's, that's it's so external. It's so visible. Right, um, but nobody says the sins of the flesh are bad, but they are the least bad of all sins. All the worst pleasures are purely spiritual. The pleasure of putting other people in the wrong. So he's saying the worst thing is not what what deals in externals, right? Um, so, and here go again back to the the angry man who who murders a thousand people versus the angry man who just gets laughed at for being a fool, right? The problem the problem that that Jesus that that Jesus is concerned about is what's going on inside of the heart. So all the worst pleasures are purely spiritual. The pleasure of putting other people in the wrong, of bossing and patronizing and spoiling sport. I don't know, I don't know exactly what he means by that. But backbiting, you, the pleasures of power, of hatred, right? You can fill in, fill in all the blanks. All of the things that we, all of the, the sins that we commit um, when we, when we um, uh, sort of live our lives for, for ourselves, when we're, when, we're, when we're narcissistic, when we, when, we, when we think of ourselves as the center of the world, when we think of all of God's gifts uh, as being ours, as claiming them for our own. He says, 
For there are two things inside me competing with the human self, which I must try to become. They are the animal self, so he thinks, that, thinks of that as these externals, right? So we've got these, we've got these built-in human instincts for good things, um, but then there's the diabolical self. Those animal instincts, those, that animal self can go wrong, but it's the diabolical self that is the worst of the two. That is why a cold, self-righteous prig who goes regularly to church may be far nearer to hell than a prostitute. And this is, note, note what Jesus says, right? He says this to the Pharisees. The sinners and the tax collectors will inherit the kingdom of God before you, right? Um, and so so Lewis, is, Lewis is right on board with Jesus on this point. But of course, it is better to be neither. I've got to say that also. Okay. All right. How's everybody doing? It is 10.15, and um, we haven't started today's section yet. So what should we do? Um, I don't know. Let's, we'll just start, and we'll see what happens. Sorry for that long pause. I was thinking carefully. Um, so, and here's what we can do. We can just start with um, the whole discussion of Christian marriage. Notice, what, notice what Lewis does. He begins on page 104, and um, as in any discussion, he wants to start with a definition. Right? He, wants, he wants to know what Christian marriage is. Um, he says that, uh, <laughs> again, as he, said, as he said about sexuality, he says, there, there are two reasons I don't want to talk about marriage. He says, the first is that the Christians doc- Christian doctrines on this are extremely unpopular. But then note what he says, how he defines Christian marriage. Um, he says this on page 104. This is the second quotation I have on the page that I haven't given to you yet. So let me do that. Would you mind getting half the room for me? Thanks. Okay. It's no wonder those blank stares increased. There's there's four for that row. Oh. Oh, he already did that. Perfect. Everybody got one? Okay, so that first quote, um, Christian doctrines on this subject are extremely unpopular. The second quote, the Christian idea of marriage is based on Christ's words that a man and wife are to be regarded as a single organism, for that is what the words one flesh would be in modern English. And this is very important. Um, and this, this sort of informs everything that we understand about marriage. And we'll talk about this later. But um, I disagree with Lewis that this is the starting point for the discussion of marriage, starting with this definition. Okay? The starting point is um, Christ and the church. Okay? If you have your Bible, open to Ephesians 5. Marriage, um, what, if, we had, if we had more time, we'd look at the marriage rite. And in the marriage rite, you, find, you see right away that... I'll just turn the page. Sorry, turn, turn the page in your handout. Um, we've got, I, I gave you the, the marriage rite from our agenda. Um, sorry, I'm telling you to do three things at once here. So, take your, Okay, I'm going to slow down. Take your time and open your Bible to Ephesians 5. And then take your handout and turn the page to where it says, Holy Matrimony, and there's two yellow highlighted paragraphs. Okay, everybody there? You see how those yellow paragraphs, they, they read this way. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here in the sight of God and before his church to witness the union of this man and this woman in holy matrimony. 
This is an honorable estate instituted and blessed by God in paradise before humanity's fall into sin, which is, uh, that is, I mean, that is a striking thing to note, right? So marriage predates the fall. Marriage is one of the good things that, that was in the garden, right? Um, and if we, if we read Genesis 2, we'd see this, right? So God said, it's, it's not fit for the man to be alone. He made the woman, took the woman from her side, and they, they were companions, right? In marriage, we see a picture of the communion between Christ and his bride, the church. So this is the first thing. In marriage, we see a picture of the communion between Christ and his bride, the church. Then they talk about the wedding at Cana. Our Lord blessed and honored marriage with his presence and first miracle at Cana in Galilee. That was the reading we had this morning in the chapel. This estate is also commended to us by the apostle Paul as honorable and good. So Paul talks about, talks about the, the, the value of marriage. But the starting place is, the, is communion between Christ and his bride, the church. Now, this is true um, of a lot of things. And one of my favorites is um, fatherhood which to me is, is pertinent um, because I'm a father. And it's, it's that um, although, I have, although I have children, I've begotten children, right? I, I'm, I've entered into this estate of fatherhood, and my, I have a vocation. My job is to be their father. Uh, when we pray in the Lord's Prayer, Our Father who art in heaven, it's not as though we're saying, Oh, Father, um, your relationship to me is like my relationship to my children. When I say I'm a father, I'm saying my relationship to my children is like God's relationship to me. You see how it's reversed, right? So my job, God's job is not, God is not imitating what happens among humans in, fathers, in fatherhood, right? I, as a father, am imitating what happens the way God deals with his church, or God, God deals with his, his children, right? Okay, same thing with Christ in the church and marriage. So... Let's see, Ephesians 5, verses 22 through 33. Next time, I'll just print out all the Bible passages and then and assume we're going to run out of time. So, um, da, 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 da. Um, yeah, we've got to read the whole thing. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Ephesians 5, 22. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body, that was not a new sentence, that was part of the old sentence. Just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's from Genesis. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Okay, so he's, ta- he's talking about that passage from Genesis. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, and I'm, talking, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. That's what Paul says, right? So the original marriage is between Christ and the church. However, let each of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Okay, so 
Um, this is the starting place for any discussion of marriage, right? You start by looking at the picture of how Christ loves the church and how the church relates to Christ, okay? Um, and let's just, uh, since we've only got five minutes, let's just flesh it out, sort of, let's just talk it out a little bit here. How does Christ love the church in a way that we can, we can interpret for marriage? Sacrificial. Sacrificial. So, and Paul says this, uh, husbands, love your wives, and just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, right? So, uh, uh, if you get, so some, sometimes we get caught up on the wives submit to your husband's part. Well, husbands die for your wives' part, right? The, both of those parts, <laughs> there's, always, there's always two sides to that, that coin. And we often, we often uh, husbands don't often uh, realize quite what they're getting into, um, which is why this is highlighted in the, the marriage vows, right? Um, take a look at this. Okay, now it's going to get confusing because you've got different pages to turn to. Pages 67 and 68, if you hold them up like this, they look like this. Okay? These are the vows that we have. Or this, is the, this is the question that's, that's asked by the pastor of the bride and the groom. Oh, man, I wish we had more. Ah, oh boy, okay. So he asks the, the, the groom, Will you have this woman to be your wedded wife, to live together in the holiest state of matrimony as God ordained it? Will you nourish her and cherish her as Christ loved his body, the church, giving himself up for her? Okay? So that's what he asks the man if he's going to do. And then he asks the bride, Will you have this man to be your wedded husband, to live together in this holy state of matrimony as God ordained it? Will you submit to him as the church submits to Christ? Right? So it's built into the marriage, into the marriage ceremony. Your any marriage that uh, that is properly a reflection of that 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 is um, that any marriage that is striving for uh, to, to follow God's will is a reflection of Christ's relationship to the church and vice versa. Okay. Um, okay. You know what? We bet I probably should stop here because I'm going to say all kinds of things and I'm just going to just going to leave you in confusion. Um, Pastor Nelson will be here next week, and maybe I'll, I'll give him this handout and I'll tell him what we talked about. And if you have any questions, uh, feel free to ask him next week. Okay. Anything, anything before we go? Okay. Let's conclude with the Lord, Lord's Prayer. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right, thank you very much.